This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. To receive updates on the latest episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com and win a chance to ask questions to our guests. Have you ever wondered why you need five steps to run a retrospective? Where did that framework come from? What's wrong in putting stuff in three columns and just looking at each item? In this episode, we will answer those questions with a framework co-creator, Diana Larson, and we will explore agile fluency and retrospectives. Diana, welcome to the show. In 1996, Norman Kurth, author of the seminal book Project Retrospectives, asked you to facilitate one of his retrospectives. Can you tell us more about that? And was that the start of your retrospective journey that led to the five steps framework? Uh, oh, well, so Norm had um, uh, had a role as an interim manager. He was a consultant with a company and they lost a manager and they uh, so he stepped in not to just consult to that project, but to also become the interim manager of it. It was very successful. Uh, he and they all wanted to learn from their success. How could they replicate that? Because it was extraordinarily successful beyond what anybody's expectations were. So Norm said, well, I wanted, you know, he wanted to do a retrospective. That was an end of project retrospective. That was his love, right? But he couldn't do it according to his own rules because he was the manager of the team. So he contacted me. He knew that I had a lot of experience facilitating meetings around organizational change and uh, team development and all of those kinds of things. And that I, you know, had a background in what, what that time wasn't called lean, but is called lean now in the sort of Japanese methods and, and so on. So he asked me if I would be interested in uh, facilitating the retrospective for him for his team. It was actually a really wonderful experience. He describes it in the book. My name's misspelled, but he describes it in the book. <laughs> and it, you, you're right. He What he did is he gave me the unpublished format. Here's the, here's how I do, re- here's how he does retrospectives. And, and he definitely gave me encouragement more than just permission, encouragement to do whatever I thought was going to be best. But, but in, for the most part, I followed what what he gave me, and we had a really wonderful retrospective, learned a lot for that team, for all of the people who worked on it, and the customers. We included the customers, actually, in that, in that retrospective. And then, as time went on and I became more, I met Esther through, actually, Norm introduced us to each other, because she was also doing end-of-project retrospectives using his format, and adjusting it as she needed to. And then both Esther and I got very involved with the the growing community of Agile. So this, when I facilitated the retrospective for Norm was like 1996 or 1997. So Agile wasn't even, didn't have a name yet, right? But um, I had begun to meet people, particularly in the extreme programming community, 
shortly after that. And Esther had her experiences with Agile. So as we continued to have uh, to get together, we realized and in talking with other colleagues, we realized that there needed to be something slightly different in the agile space than just the big end of project retrospective that Norm described. Norm described it very well, and that is still very useful to do those longer term, larger chunks of work retrospectives. But we came to the conclusion, actually talking to some people with Connect, from Connextra, Tim McKinnon, Rachel Davies, um, some of those folks, that there needed to be uh, retrospectives around uh, the iterative cadence of, of Agile. So sprints, uh, releases, iterations, what, you know, whatever people were, were calling them, there needed to be time for not only the whole organization to look at how they could improve the way they did projects, but for teams to look at how they could improve just the way they were working together and their own work processes. So that's how I began doing it. And then, you know, as you do, then Esther and I began to write about what was it that we were doing that was different from what Norm was doing. Um, and, ex and that extended what he was doing into more of an agile space. How did you and Hester come up with a five-step framework? Um, well, we began looking at, we, we looked at a number of different things. We looked at the way that uh, Norm described doing retrospectives in his book. Uh, we looked at other uh, for facilitation formats that we knew were effective. Uh, one from the Institute for Cultural Affairs in Canada um, that uh, is used widely in the facilitation community to um, for for many different for many different purposes. That's called the uh, Art of Focused Conversations. It's a book we referenced it in the back of our book. Um, that is basically the format. Um, we've run into it again, actually, through the Human Systems Dynamics Institute. They have something they call the adaptive action format. All of it has to do with first assessing what's the state of the current situation. Let's get clear about where we are now. And then, then we can say, now that we have clarity on that, what what insights are we given? What implications do we see because of the certain this situation? It's in an analytical phase. First is a descriptive phase, then is an analytical phase. And then the last is a decision phase, right? So now what do we want to do about that, right? If we see these implications, we have these insights, where's the best place to put our energy next? So that became gather data, generate insights, decide what to do. But what we also knew was that most of the people who were going to pick up our book were not trained facilitators. They're, they were software folks. And then there's no reason that they needed to be trained facilitators. That wasn't their job. Uh, it's interesting how those facilitation techniques have now become more important in the Agile world than they were at the time. But you know, then we were talking to engineers and, and project managers and, you know, folks who's that 
wasn't part of their job. And so we knew we also needed to give them some help in how do you get into this meeting and how do you get out of this meeting, particularly because the sequence that we saw meant that the retrospective was probably going to come after the sprint review or project demo, whatever methodology you're following. They're going to be looking, having some conversation with your customers about what you deliver to them and how it's going. So there's going to be some information from that. And then it was going to be followed by a meeting, a, a planning for the next, um, either either the um, either the sprint planning meeting or you're doing extreme programming, you're looking at, you know, setting up the story game, you know, the user story game. So, you know, how, how do you position this retrospective in the midst of this, series of meetings that are going to be going on. So that's when we realized we needed to give people a way. How do you start this meeting? Well, you set the stage. And here are some things you do that help people set the stage. And then here at the end, close the retrospective, here are some things you do to help people shift from this work into whatever work is coming after. And that that we were going to need to provide that instruction. Um, for folks who this wasn't part of their usual work. And so then we then we wrote that up too. We had already begun collecting different activities and things that we had used. And so once we once we determined that those five steps seemed to be the thing that was going to work best for people, then we were able to begin assigning the different activities that we had collected. And then we collected more from other colleagues and uh, suggestions of from, from uh, we used a lot of the total quality methods, five whys and the fishbone diagram and those kinds of things. We incorporated those because that focus on continuous improvement um, was also really helpful in this, obviously in this in this context. So, so that's how the five steps came to be. We wanted to make sure that people had all the understanding that they needed. The funny thing was, while we were writing the book, as we talked to people about writing the book, very often we would get from somebody, well, I don't understand how you can write a whole book about retrospectives. It's just two questions, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the the thing is, you can make two lists of what went well and what we'd like to do differently, but that doesn't move you into action, right? That doesn't auto, just having the list doesn't really make a difference. It may have increased some awareness, but that's all. Um, the What's beautiful about the five steps is I have reflected on it. I mean, I, I often, people often hear me say, you you build models and you put them out in the world and then they teach you back. And one of the things that the uh, retrospective model has taught me back is that by using those five steps, what we do is we take a group of people so that they can go simultaneously go through the same thinking process that an individual goes through. Your attention is drawn to something. You take in some information about that thing. You decide whether it's, you, you, you look at it and you analyze what's, 
what are, how is it affecting you? And then you decide whether you want to do, you know, I look at my coffee cup. Oh, I've got a coffee cup here. Oh, it's only half full. Mm, does that mean I want to go get some more coffee? Uh, I think I'll wait till later. That's, that's gather data, generate insights, decide what to do. And then, okay, well, I'm going to leave that alone now. So I close that retrospective. You know, it's, it's how people's brains work. And the five step, the five steps help a whole group of people do that simultaneously. So it also helps group learning because it takes what we all do individually and, and brings it out as a group process. And that's the real power in it. And that's why we suggest that people don't leave out parts because you, you, you miss whole parts of the thinking process when you do. You mentioned describe, analyze, decide, and in another interview, you talked about the what, so what, now what approach. They both share key concepts with the five steps framework. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So the what, so what, now what comes from Institute for Cultural Affairs and this art of focused conversation, which had a, a process that they called the ORID. O-R-I-D, observation, reflection, interpretation, and decision. And they, they facilitate using that technique. So then, so that's, you know, you see the situation, describe the situation, reflect on how you responded to the situation, which we collapsed into gather data. We said factual observational data and the feelings that you have are all what they are all part of that gathering data and so we collapse those two pieces into one and then then the interpretation is the insights and the decision obviously so they used to call it what gut so what now what <laughs> the human systems dynamics institute looked at that in a different way and created the what so what now what format for their adaptive action and they included that. And then Liberating Structures borrowed that from, from the work that they'd done. Or maybe that happened in parallel. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Diana mentioned gather data, collapsed factual observational data and feelings. I asked her if one is more important than the other. Well, you know, <laughs> there are the things that happen. And then there is how we respond to the things that happened. The other piece that I actually should include in here is that Esther had done quite a work, a lot of work with Jerry Weinberg, who had also done quite a lot of work with Virginia Satir. And she had something she called the interaction model, which was also paralleled these same, um, these same kind of things that we've been taking about, these same formats. So, so the idea is things happen. But the, the real crux of the matter is how do we respond to the things that happen? You know, I mean, just to continue with my coffee cup example, on some days I could, you know, be clumsy and knock over my coffee cup and I'd just be, <laughs> I knocked over my coffee cup again. Now let me get it cleaned up. And I would just go on with my day. Other days, if I'm, if I'm in a different state of mind or something, I could knock over my coffee cup and I could become very hard on myself. Oh, how stupid I am. I'm always knocking over my coffee cups. I could let it ruin my whole day. 
So it's not just the fact that I knocked over my coffee cup. That's a fact. I did that. There's now coffee all over my desk or whatever, my keyboard. What's really important is how did I respond to that fact? What, what, what emotions came up in me when I, when I encountered that fact? What, how did that influence my subsequent behavior, right? And when you start, you know, scaling up from just an individual to a group of people, I mean, maybe I'm fine with knocking over my coffee cup, but there's six people around me who are saying, oh my God, you did it again. You know, that's, that's another dynamic. And groups of people can very much get into those kinds of dynamics. And so being able to pull those out and examine them becomes very important. But back in the, in the early 2000s, when Esther and I were working on the book, early to mid um, people were absolutely convinced that engineers were allergic to the whole idea of feelings. They did not deal with emotions. They didn't want to deal with emotions. And <laughs> so we began using this language of it's not how you feel about a thing. It's how you respond when that thing happens. And that seemed to help people get kind of over <laughs> over the hump. <laughs> And, and other people say, well, facts are feelings. It's a fact that I feel that way. And yes, it is. But, you know, knocking over the coffee cup is always going to be knocking over the coffee cup. How we respond to knocking over the coffee cup may vary widely from my whatever else is going on in my context and whatever else, whatever else has happened to me earlier in the day and all of those kinds of things. So those those two things together, what happens and how we respond to it, how we responded to it in the past, both deserve a lot of investigation when we're looking toward improvement. In the other retrospectives book, you mention how not to use the word feelings sometimes and instead use energy, experiencing high energy, low energy in certain events. Can you tell us a story about that? Yeah. Well, actually, um, that was one of one of the things that uh, the great um, uh, addition, I think, to the way we do retrospectives today, and that is um, our colleague uh, Jean Tabeka, um, who passed away a few years ago. She made so many great contributions, and one of the things was she came to a, a gathering of folks who were. Um, all people who did retrospective facilitated retrospectives and cause we would get together on occasion and share. And, um, she did a retrospective on an event that happened. I mean, there's nothing worse than leading a retrospective for a bunch of retrospective facilitators. <laughs> cause everybody is going meta and, you know, but Jean was great. And, but she showed us, she used with us a timeline. And where she asked us to put the um, events that had happened related to this to this uh, situation uh, higher or lower on the timeline according to whether we had high energy at the time or low energy at the time the according according to whether those those um, events made us smile or made us feel sad and frown. And, and so we, we did that. And so she began to 
help us begin to think about additional ways we could bring in that 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 information about how people felt about things, how they responded, without actually having to use kind of language that was triggering for some folks. I call whack-a-mole retrospectives the ones that only apply patch solutions without really generating any non-obvious insight. I asked Diana, after data is gathered, how does she generate insights? Generating insights is when when we look at what happened, when we when we believe we've described it sufficiently that we all are on the same page as you said earlier. Generating insights is okay now that we can step back and look at the entirety of everything that happened during this sprint, everything that happened during this iteration. We've got it. We've got a whole picture of it now. Do we begin to see some patterns? Do we do we notice things that we've noticed before or haven't noticed before? Is there something new happening? Is there something that's been happening every single uh, iteration that is we're, that we're tripping continually tripping over? What kinds of things cause us to trip or stutter or miss our build or whatever it is? So we begin to do that analysis. And the, the interesting thing about Mad Sad Glad and, and some of those other, when we take a generating insights activity and start the retrospective with it, is everybody is looking, everybody's thinking about it from a different point of view because it, all we have is our own point of view as individual team members. All we have is our own point of view until we take the time to do this broader scan, until we share our experiences of the things that happened during the retrospective. If somebody's out for a day or even gone for a meeting, they missed some part of what happened in the team during that, during that period of time. The generating insights is really where the learning happens. We need to kind of get the basis of what we're looking at through gathering data, but then generating insights is where we really begin to learn about the, the implications of what happened. How did how did it affect us? What happened as, as a result of that? What what other decisions did it cause us to make in the moment that we might not otherwise have made? Um, I mean, there's just lots and lots of questions that can be asked there, and it is a lot of where the learning happens. It's also when we published the book, there wasn't a lot of information in the agile community about Kinevin and human systems dynamics and some of the other complexity, uh, some of the work that Yurganopolo has been doing, that wasn't really in our community yet. Uh, or I think we would have included it in the book. But it also is an opportunity to say, well, this thing we tripped over is that, uh, if we use if we use the Kinevin framework, for instance, is that, um, is that a simple, is that in the in the obvious domain? Is that, was that a complicated problem? Was that a complex problem? Kinevin, that's uh, David Snowden's, it's C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. And it's one of the complexity frameworks that people have found very useful. So that before we decide what we're going to do, we have some sense of what kind of approach should we take to this thing that we want to fix. And so we don't end up with whack-a-mole, right? 
Circles and Soup is a retrospective activity you created to identify items the team can control, influence in the inner circles, or items living outside in the outer circle, the soup, where the team can only come up with response actions. Can you tell us more about this activity? I think that also that also has to do with how long has the team been together? How often have they done retrospectives? How you know have they built their improvement muscles yet together? You know the the collective team has an improvement muscle that they need to build when they come first together, and tackling some of those things that the team controls first that are a little bit easier, maybe the simpler or the more obvious issues that, that come up, the, the more standardized work issues that come up, tackling those first that, that the team can really get their head around, that they can do something about, they don't have to ask anyone for permission, they can just do it, helps to begin to build those muscles around team improvements. And then as they become more sophisticated, more knowledgeable about the ways that they tend to work together, they begin to see more of their own patterns. Then they can move into, oh, maybe now we want to take on some influencing actions. Now maybe we want to make some recommendations to our manager about things that could be helpful to us. But they need to get a really clear picture of what they're doing together first and how to do that first. And so I see that I see that in some ways as a fluency progression. You know, how you, you develop fluency in doing retrospectives. And the first way that you become fluent is being able to deal with the problems that are just internal to the team, that, that the team has direct control over. Diana is the co-creator of Agile Fluency, a model to introduce and track progress in Agile practices. The model has a step called the shot for the company to define where to invest in Agile. For the team, there are four zones in the Fluency model focusing, delivering, optimizing, strengthening. How do retrospectives fit in those zones? Calling your shots is uh, advice that we give to the organization for them to understand what benefits they're looking for from their teams, what benefits they really need from their teams in order to produce the products or the deliverables that they need to be that they need to be producing and then saying create an investment plan in your teams that takes into account all of the benefit that you need not don't try to do it sequentially so much so that's what the call your shots is about that's more about how the organization is creating its investment plan for the teams you're right we have we have four we call them fluency zones um, because they are accumulative, but we don't see them as necessarily a ladder. Um, all right, well, I guess you have to step on the first rung of the ladder to get the second rung of the ladder, but, but it's not like a maturity model. Uh, we don't think everyone should become a strengthening team. We don't think every organization needs optimizing teams. Um, but what we do need to do is some analysis on which of these zones do we need our teams to be in? And that's what looking at the benefits does. So if you if you look at the benefits that you need from your teams and you decide we need focusing teams or we need delivering teams, 
then you're going to invest accordingly. Where retrospectives come in is more for the teams in particular. So in the focusing zone, the team's retrospectives are going to be looking at the things that are most important to delivering the benefits in that zone. So they're going to be looking at how well are they working together? How is their teamwork going? Uh, do What else do they need to be effective uh, collaborating in, in their work together? Is there anything they need to adjust in their work process and the way work is flowing through? Maybe they started out with Scrum, and now they think maybe we should incorporate a more single piece flow Kanban kind of thing. Well, that might come up in their retrospective. Um, how they are working with their product owner to really understand where the customer finds value um, is, is, would be very appropriate uh, for a retrospective topic in that zone. So all of those kinds of things. Um, and, and just, you know, are we producing what we want to be producing and can we get better at that? In the delivering zone, the nature of the retrospectives is going to change because it's going to look more at are we, uh, are we using all the engineering practices that we should be uh, implementing that are going to help us create the fewest amount of bugs in our code so that we can... Um, we can do continuous delivery. That we can that our uh, that our integration is is going smoothly, and that we are always able to do that. So that the the way agile fluency and retrospectives works together is the nature of the kinds of things that you're probably looking at in your retrospectives is going to change depending on the zone that you're trying to develop fluency in. In optimizing, the team is owning the whole product. So there might be, and, and it's a truly cross-functional team. There's everybody is a member of the team that is needed to actual, actually get product into the hand, to, to market the product and get product into the hands of users. So there, again, you might come back to some of those themes around collaboration, but it's how are we doing with our cross-functional collaboration? Are we, are we making sure that we're getting all the information we need from all the various team members from their expertise? Are we incorporating that every time that we are doing a new release? Uh, how well are we getting to understand uh, our, and anticipate our customers' needs? So now the team is not charged with just working from the backlog that they're given, but actually doing much more work in helping to create that backlog and helping to anticipate how new technologies, how AI or a digital revolution is going to, or machine learning might be impacting the nature of their product that their customers may not even be able to think about yet but that the, the technical people on the team and the visionary marketing people on the team can begin to see, oh, down the road, we're going to, we're, we're, our customers are going to want this. Well, how do we start the roadmap toward that? So those kinds of decisions are now happening in the team. And so the retrospectives are going to swirl around those kinds of themes as opposed to the things that we're in focusing and delivering. Diana, what do you think about having a rotating facilitator in our retrospectives? I actually think it's a great idea. 
you know, in the book, we talked about you might, if you, there's no one on your team that has those skills, you might want to bring in from someone from the outside. But that was then, this is now. And what we know now is those kinds of what I've started calling permanent skills. I borrowed that from, so I wish I could remember who I borrowed that from. I didn't make it up. The idea that no matter where you go in your career, if you know how to facilitate a meeting, it is going to stand you in good stead, no matter what your other technical skills are, no matter what direction of your career is. So it's helpful for everyone on the team to gain a little more expertise, at least some more expertise in facilitating meetings. And retrospectives are a low risk way for team members to change that around. The other thing that we've noticed is that when everyone on the team knows that it's their turn to facilitate the retrospective is going to be coming up, it changes the way they participate in the retrospective <laughs> because they're much less likely to be, dis, you know, disruptive or sidetrack or whatever because they know at some point they're going to be facing the group and they want the group to come along with them when they're facilitating. So um, I think it's great skills. Very often on a team, you end up with maybe if you've got a seven-person team let's say, there may be only two or three people who really have an affinity for facilitating meetings or who are really interested in developing more skill in that. A lot of times, those are the people that rotate around. But, but the idea being that you don't actually need an outsider to do it, or you don't actually need the scrum master to always be the person or your team coach to always be leading the retrospective. That's a useful skill for everyone to develop. But what if the rotating facilitators are just going through a list of action items? No five steps, no opening or closing, only looking at the three columns, trying to find an immediate action item without going any deeper. Well, one of the things that we've noticed in the Agile community, and I think other people have probably noticed this before, is that every term gets co-opted and used the way people want to use it. So that person who's leading a retrospective in that way may call what they're doing facilitating, <laughs> but, they, but they aren't really. Or they're facilitating at a very... Um, minimal kind of not even good enough for now level, right? They're just going through the motions. F true facilitation is really leading people through the steps that they need to go through as a group to be able to think together, to be able to come to some conclusions and to take a really in-depth look at the situation. Another book that comes from outside the retrospective community that I highly recommend for folks is a book called Where the Action Is by a woman. The author is Elise Keith, E-L-I-S-E-K-E-I-T-H. She has written a book about the 16 different kinds of meetings that go on when we're trying to do work together and really understanding which kind, what are, what kind of work are we trying to accomplish right now? What is going to best help this group move through their thought process together to get to the outcome that they need right now? So what you're describing is somebody who's just having a discussion session 
not leading people through so that they feel collective buy-in to that they all want to make sure that this next thing that they've chosen happens, that that there's assurance that when we made a team decision, everybody's voice was equally heard. Um, some of those characteristics of really strong facilitation, they aren't present when you just look at the lists, right? So, so we want to make sure that everyone is getting really good facilitation skills because they are so useful. It's another area of fluency that you need in your team. You need someone who has a high level of skill, fluent proficiency in leading all the kinds of meetings, the demos, the retrospectives, that, you know, that the team itself learns to lead its own stand-ups, which is another meeting that, that needs to go smoothly and well, and, and there are techniques for that. There's this fallacy that we think because we're born as humans, we are all born with the skill at listening to each other. We are all born with the skill at communicating what we really mean. We are all born at, at the skill of getting together and having a meeting together. And it's just not true. Those, just like reading and writing and math and, and computer programming, those are all skills that you need to develop over time to be really effective with them. Why should we focus our retrospective on a specific topic? Well, because a lot of things happen. Even if you're just looking at a two-week sprint, say, a lot of things happen during that period of time that are influenced by a lot of things that happened to get us to that period of time. And very often, we are not given enough time to do a really in-depth retrospective. So we have to choose a subset of what we're going to look at. What someone needs to make the judgment call. What were the things that irritated us, helped to make us successful, whatever it was that stand out for us about this particular iteration and then really take a deeper dive into those. Again, because then we can understand, you know, where is this in the complexity spectrum? Was this a complex situation? Was it a, uh, an, an obvious situation? Were the, what, how did we make those choices? How was our decision making around this? When when we just look at those lists and talk about it, give each thing a couple of minutes and then try to come to a conclusion, we have not really given the depth of analysis to what gives rise to each of those either enablers or constraints, things that got in our way. We aren't really giving enough time to really examine those so that we can get away from the whack-a-mole, so that we can really deal with kind of the what has generated those conditions to occur, those, those events to occur. And until we really look at it in depth, we can't really know how to improve that situation. I mean, another way of going about this is sort of the, some of the Toyota Kata things. And, and I've talked a lot with the folks who, who do that. And it's a very structured process of, of deep diving on particular issues and then staying with them until we feel like we've really made an improvement that's enough for now. And then we can, you know, we may have to come back to it later, but for now we can move on and look at something else. You may have things going on in your team that are going to, that you're going to need to deal with over a number of iterations, a number of retrospectives that they aren't going to get fixed in one, two week change of habit right? Reopening up the whole list every time you do a retrospective 
just confuses the issue. It's like, how can you stick with that one thing till you feel like you've really made progress on it and then maybe take something else? In a past interview, you said 30 minutes retrospectives are a waste of time and suggested a 75 minutes retrospective. Some people have very strong feelings about meetings that take over one hour. Can you tell us more about your experience? What I have noticed that it, it, it depends on the size of the group. It depends on the length of time you're looking at, all those kinds of things. If you have a very large team, highly conflictual or highly controversial things were happening during your sprint, you're going to need a longer time for your retrospective because those kinds of things, you have to sort through all those responses to the things that happened to really get at what's at the core. For a group of five to six people, four to six people say. My experience has been that if we really look at what happened, you know, gather our data, and then we spend some good time analyzing our data, and then we give enough time so that everyone gets to participate, coming to a decision about what kind of improvement actions we want to take on, most groups especially if they're fairly new to the retrospective or kind of intermediate to retrospective, that just seems to take about 75 minutes. Doesn't necessarily take a whole hour and a half, but it tends to take more than an hour. And I don't know why that is. It's just what I've noticed. Now, there are groups who have been doing retrospectives for years, who've gotten into a really good cadence about it, where everybody on the team really knows how to participate in that whole thinking together process, they sometimes can conclude in less than an hour. You know, it's all just, it's all guidelines. You know, your, your mileage may vary, but I would play around with the length of time. There is almost no group of people beyond just one or two people <laughs> who can do an effective retrospective and come to really substantial, useful improvement actions in half an hour. All you can do is go back to your two lists, and that's not going to move you forward. That's why I think it's a waste of time. We are almost at the end of the show, and it's time to ask the same three questions we ask to all our guests. Diana, what is your favorite retrospective activity? I have a favorite retrospective activity, and I don't get to do it very often. These days, when I'm doing a retrospective, it tends to be for a pretty large group. But my favorite retrospective technique is the circle of questions from our book. It's a it's a help an activity that helps bring a group of people to a decision together, kind of a one mind sort of thing. And the description of it can't describe how powerful it is when a group experiences it. But it only works with groups of eight to ten, maybe maybe twelve people. You need to be able to get through several rounds of asking the, each other the questions. But I, I love it because when it works, it is so incredibly powerful. It just gives me goosebumps. <laughs> what is a book you're reading right now? What's a book I'm reading right now? Um, I actually, uh, I have some friends who've just written a new book, a relatively new book, that's called a Business Model Canvas for Teams, I believe. And I've so I've just started reading that because I want to discuss that with them. We want to talk about how it fits with the Agile Fluency model. Uh, the authors are Tim Clark and Bruce Hazen. And uh, so I've just gotten into it. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Looking forward to talking to them about it. 
And the final question, Diana, what is your favorite dish? My favorite dish? Oh, um, it's a Vietnamese, a Vietnamese uh, dish called bun. That is, um, it's, I, yeah, if, if I could only eat one thing for the rest of my life, that's what I would eat. <laughs> Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Which change are you going to try in your next retrospective? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag thisisretrospectivefacilitation or leave us a comment on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com. Norm Kurt, known as the father of retrospectives and author of the book Project Retrospectives, suffered a disabling brain injury in a car accident 20 years ago. Visit thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash helpnorm for details and a link on how to contribute to his fund. You can connect with Diana on Twitter at Diana of Portland or on LinkedIn Diana Larson Agile SWD. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.